This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, the federal conservative leadership race is not over yet, despite what you might think after you know reading about what's been going on in the news. In fact, they had their last official debate yesterday, but not all the candidates showed up for that. So what is going on in this race? Joining us now is Alex Boulier, who's a Global News senior national political uh, reporter. Thanks for being with us, Alex. Great to be with you. So how many people did show up and what was going on with this debate last night? <laughs> So we had three of the uh, remaining five conservative leadership candidates uh, sitting around a very small table, it must be said, um, with party president uh, Rob Batherson serving as moderator, Jean Charest, um, the former Quebec premier and progressive conservative leader, Roman Baber, uh, who's an Ontario MPP before he was turfed from uh, Premier Doug Ford's caucus, um, and Scott Aitchison, who is a fairly new uh, politician in Ottawa um, and has sort of surprised, I think, uh, many by getting into this race and, and sticking in this race. So, you know, we didn't have uh, Pierre Polyev, the presumed frontrunner, or, or Leslin Lewis, who has sort of styled herself as the social conservative standard bearer in this race, as she was in the race in, in 2020 when she finished third. Um, so we really didn't, uh, you know, have perhaps the more interesting and entertaining um, candidates around the table. Uh, and uh, I think the debate reflected that. Yeah, so what was their rationale for skipping it? And was was this like always on the list and they decided at the last minute or what happened? No, so originally the party had scheduled two uh, official debates. Uh, later, they changed their mind to add a third. Um, Polyev and his team pretty much immediately said that that was not on, that they would um, you know, spend their, their time and effort uh, getting out their vote rather than uh, participating in another debate. Um, you know, I think it's, it was fairly safe for Polyev to do that, just given the command he seems to have over this race. Um, he didn't need uh, another opportunity for, um, you know, Jean Charest, for instance, to try and, uh, you know, take him down a peg. Uh, he didn't need to give himself any opportunity to uh, have a gaffe or, or stumble, anything that could really slow his momentum uh, leading into the September 10th vote. Um, for Dr. Lewis, uh, a little bit of a different sort of take. Uh, she, you know, suggested that, um, you know, the party wasn't asking the real questions, um, or the, at least the questions that she wanted to talk about. So she decided to to skip it and risk a, a fifty thousand dollar fine as a result. Um, some of the questions that she wanted asked uh, are, were around things like vaccine mandates, um, you know, the World Economic Forum, which is. Um, you know, kind of been the target of uh, right-wing conspiracy theories uh, throughout the pandemic. Uh, so she wasn't happy with the with the topics that were going to be discussed. So she decided to sit out. Okay, so interesting. Then does this does this show us kind of where the race is at right now in terms of the people who see themselves as the front runners and those who are still hoping for that you know that special moment, that aha moment. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll preface this with a caveat that, you know, conservative leadership uh, races tend to be surprising. You know, everybody knew that Peter McKay was going to win in 2020. Everybody knew that Maxime Bernier was going to win in 2017. And, of course, both of those things uh, didn't end up happening. Uh, you know, both uh, featured true. upsets, first with yeah. Andrew Scheer and then uh, with Aaron O'Toole. Um, you know, that said, it really does seem like Pierre Polyev has a stranglehold on this race. Um, you know, he obviously doesn't uh, see the need to speak to all conservative members. He was speaking to some conservative members in Regina last night, um, but he obviously doesn't uh, see any utility in in, uh, in sharing a platform with, with his rivals. 
at this stage in the race. Um, keep in mind that uh, the party says that only 150,000 ballots have been cast as of right now. So, you know, we're still dealing with, you know, more than 450,000 conservative members, uh, sort of a, a record uh, in recent Canadian politics in terms of total members um, who have yet to cast their ballot. That doesn't mean their mind is not made up. It doesn't mean that uh, they necessarily will cast a ballot, um, but there's still a lot of votes out there to get. Okay, so how does this how is this going to work then, Alex? So you mentioned the race is coming up in uh, September. Is this one of those traditional where we'll find out they're all going to vote at the same time, or is the, are these mailed ballots? How does this work? Yeah, the, the majority will be mailed in ballots. Um, so you know they'll be counted on uh, the night of with scrutineers from from the various campaigns, sort of overseeing that process. Um, it won't be sort of like a, a traditional political convention where, you know, you have delegates on, on the floor. I don't think that that's in the cards right now. Um, you know, so the majority of, of uh, ballots will be mailed in um, in the first week of September, and then we'll have the result on September 10th. Right. I should say we yep. should have the result on September 10th. In 2020, um, you know, there was a problem with the uh, the voting machines. Oh, right. And, and the results sort of stretched. I think I filed my story at like 3 a.m. Oh. Ottawa time. So who knows? You know, like <laughs> I said off the top, conservative races can be, uh, can be very surprising. Well, eventful certainly makes them newsworthy, right? At least people will be for paying sure. attention for sure. Alex, thank you so much for your time this morning. Always a pleasure. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we are not alone in BC when it comes to struggles with our health care system. You may have seen, heard, read about the story from Ontario where Premier Doug Ford yesterday there was talking about what's going on in their emergency rooms and hospitals. They've got them filled to capacity, uh, essentially not just hours and hours of waiting. There is no room for patients in some uh, Toronto area hospitals there. So we're hearing these stories right across the country. And in fact, paramedics across the country say it's much the same situation. They are struggling to answer emergency calls. They are struggling to provide care because of those overcrowded hospitals, because of staff shortages. So why, after all this time of talking about it, haven't we been able to fix this problem? Well, joining us now is Troy Clifford, Provincial President of the Ambulance Paramedics and Emergency Dispatchers of BC. He's also an active paramedic. Good morning, Troy. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being here. So when you heard the stories out of Ontario in the last, you know, 48 hours or so, did that surprise you or were you hearing about that already? Absolutely. Unfortunately, it is not a surprise. Yeah, we've been hearing about it for a while. It's, uh, I'd like to say our challenges in BC are unique, but that's not the case, obviously. So what is the situation then? Why, are, why is everybody seeing these kinds of delays? What's happening? So you know, uh, you know, our partners in health, obviously, with the uh, with with the shortage of staff, and you know, we know in BC we have over a million people without GPs, um, and uh, you know that our nurses are, and other health professionals are are short uh, of human resources. But uh, you know, we've been sounding this alarm. A lot of this is not new issues. I mean, you know, we've chatted lots about uh, the challenges in BC with the ability to recruit and retain paramedics and our model that just hasn't been sustainable. But we're seeing more and more of these hospital closures that are definitely affecting, we're transporting patients longer. But this goes back a long time uh, when, we, when, we, when many of the local facilities were closed down or limited hours. You know, smaller hospitals were, uh, their emergency capacity was shut down. And so we're, we've been transporting patients longer distances for a long time. And it's just with increased call volumes, more acuity of patients, meaning more sick patients out there. 
um, increased call volumes are putting extreme pressures on the paramedic system, which ultimately puts it on the uh, emergency department. And then the other key thing is, you know, with increased uh, mental health and addiction challenges, you know, a lot of people are in the emergency system that definitely don't, that's not the best place for them. We know that addictions and mental health, unless you're having a crisis, uh, an immediate intervention crisis, the best place for them is not in the emergency department or the uh, back of an ambulance. And so there's more and more of that on the street, more seniors in their homes. And, uh, you know, after a couple of years of shut-in, we're just seeing incredible increases of the call volumes. Um, that, those are all the sort of things that are creating this problem. Um, and then, you know, obviously there's there are other issues with the paramedic recruitment in BC for sure. Right. So there's a, it's like a domino effect too, isn't it? So you can close an ER for 12 hours because you're short staffed, but then you're dramatically impacting paramedics because paramedics now have to drive much longer, much farther, thereby tying up that ambulance. Absolutely. And we're there with many more sicker patients. Um, sicker patients. I mean, are, you know, and so we're spending more time. So, you know, in a, a, I'll use an example of, you know, Ashcroft that was recently closed, Clearwater, um, you know, just use some interior ones, examples, uh, limited capacity in Kelowna over the weekend. Uh, I think yesterday they had limited uh, life limit uh, capacity. So they were diverting patients from the outer lying areas to Vernon and, and Penticton. So in Asuyas and Oliver at night, they uh, transport patients to Penticton. So, when you're down ambulances, uh, that leaves an area, large areas without ambulances. And we're seeing this on the island, in the north, uh, many places. So it's mm. really challenging. So we've talked a lot, Troy, I know, about hiring more paramedics, right? Hiring more paramedics, yeah. hiring more e-com staff to deal with the calls. But this is even hiring more staff in hospitals because that would help too, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Our turnaround times, it, it impacts our delays when we're at when we spend it, even though, you know, if they're closed, but they're full, um, we're seeing those continued delays in emergency departments where we can't release the paramedics because they can't offload their patients. So that's putting additional pressures. Um, you know, our biggest problem really is our ability to compete with even those professions that, uh, you know, nurses, police, fire, because of our wage and our precarious model, right? So those are all challenging for us that are unique to them, uh, to, to the other professionals but uh all across the country we're seeing but particularly in bc that human resources uh, staffing challenge so what needs to be done here then troy like what how can we help yeah so there's a couple things i think that obviously there's a lot of work being done with gps but you don't think these things didn't happen all night you know it takes a long time to become a doctor a nurse a paramedic all, all those sorts of things that are challenged for so you know, they need to add more seats, obviously, for GPs. I think they're working on that, but it's not going to happen overnight. Um, you know, nursing is the same thing. It's not going to happen. They've added a whole lot of seats. We haven't seen those numbers and the and the support added for uh, the additional training for paramedics. Um, and we need to change that model in BC to get away from the on-call volunteer model that uh, has not worked and is not uh, recruiting paramedics. Do you think any of this discussion is happening, Troy? Because I know there's a lot right now going on in the health ministry. They need to find more family doctors. They want to overhaul how we pay doctors and other people in the system. So, like, where is this on the list? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I, I've had many discussions with the ministry, and there has been a lot of influx into the ambulance service funding and that sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, right now, um, you know, where do we fit in the whole scheme of things? But I, I counter that whole argument is if we don't have a primary emergency ambulance in every community that can respond in a timely fashion, treat and transport people in their time of need, you know, that's the foundation of the health and, and public safety system. And we're not meeting those needs. So I say that that is where we need to fundamentally uh, bolster the resources. And, and we've done some work on that, but it isn't, it, we've still got a long ways to go. And I really think that's the conversations that need to move from talking about it to actually actioning it. All right, Troy, thank you so much for your time. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it's not easy for a lot of people to deal with it when there is a heat wave. We all look for ways to keep cool. So there are questions about what happened in Crab Park during this latest heat wave. And the reason is that there's a significant section in a corner of Crab Park that actually has much of the shady treed area in the park. Problem is, it's been fenced off so people can't access it. And that became a real concern in this last heat wave. Joining us now is Fiona York, a Crab Park advocate to talk more about this. Fiona, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So how significant is this shady area over there? Is this, is this the, like the more shady part of the park? Yes, if you look at an aerial view of the park, you can see that the shaded area is the, the hillside on the west side of the park and along the side of the park beside the road. And um, it's probably um, about a quarter of the size of the park, and it's completely fenced off, so the, pretty much the whole area. There is one other small treat area, but this is by far the largest area that's fenced off. Okay, so then what happened during this last heat wave? Um, during the last heat wave, the people who were staying in the park, so there's a tent city with about 75 residents, um, and in, on April 25th, they were, there was an order to have them move down to the uh, peninsula area of the park. Um, so people are staying in the area where there's, there are not very many trees and they're not in the tree area, and people found it, of course, very hot and not shaded. So there's very little tree cover in the uh, area where people are staying. And, of course, it was very hot during the recent heat wave because they couldn't access the shade. Okay, so what is the reason why? Because, you know, I feel like for some people it's not an ideal situation to have people in Crab Park like that, but they still need shade in a heat wave, don't they? Exactly. Um, and the, uh, the Tent City Crab Park has been relocated about four times uh, since um, over a year that it's been there. And it actually did used to be located on the hillside in the, the precisely the shaded area that's now fenced off. But on, in April, there, everyone was asked to move down to the peninsula and um, now cannot access that shaded area. Uh, so it's completely fenced off and inaccessible. And the area that is now being used for the tent city uh, doesn't have very much tree cover. There were requests to the park board to allow people to be in the treed area um, in the shade previous, uh, but a couple of weeks before the, the um, heat wave, and they were declined. Okay. Was there any negotiation about that? Was there a way for them to say, for to say, well, if you like, we'll only do it temporarily, and then when the heat wave is over, we'll move back? Like, any any discussion on that? There was not. Um, There's a couple of requests, um, both verbally and in writing, um, and the uh, the park board said that they weren't ready to remove the fence. Um, they had fenced it due to remediation of the soil, 
and that it wasn't ready yet to have foot traffic on it and they didn't want to remove the fencing. Um, they suggested that people could shelter in the gazebo area, which is about 30 meters square. It's a, a small uh, gazebo that's set up in the, uh, in the park um, and clearly not sufficient for the number of people that are there. It's a very small um, covered area and depending on the time of day, it doesn't have any shade at all. Right. Okay. So how do you, how did that make you feel then, Fiona, with this situation? That must have been very frustrating. It was it's certainly frustrating. Um, it, it sort of also reminds us of um, other parks and other uh, fencing that's happened um, in, in parks in recent years. So in the downtown east side, um, following Kent Cities, there has been the fencing of Strathcona Park and Oppenheimer Park. And it seems uh, like that's really the kind of go-to tactic of the park board in recent years, where after uh, there's been a Kent City or even towards the end of it, there's um, been fencing and um, even while Tent City has still been there, one of the tactics has been to fence certain portions of it, and that happened even in different areas of Crab Park. So it just seems like this is a strategy or tactic the Park Board has gone to um, in recent years to kind of contain or uh, shut off certain areas to people. And um, it just seems really inappropriate when we're talking about something that's uh, you know a health and safety hazard, as we all learned last summer, that they're using this type of tactic. Okay, so do you feel this was like extenuating circumstances that because of the heat wave they should have made an exception? Exactly. I think that there should have been a consideration. It was brought up. There was some discussion around it. And it just seems very clear that this is something that would be mitigating during a heat wave. Um, There has been uh, mister and some uh, running water that's been installed um, in the last month or so, which obviously is very helpful. But um, the shade is, is, uh, you know, clearly something that um, is suggested during a heat wave. It was even brought up last summer that um, so many parks in the downtown east side uh, had so little shade um, offered because so much of it was under fencing. Fiona, where are we at in in terms of helping people find a home or find housing so that they don't even have to be in Crab Park to begin with? I think there, you know, we've seen also with the tent city on Hazing Street where people are being um, evicted from there and there really isn't housing or anywhere or a plan people to go and I think it's the same with Crab Park that there simply isn't enough housing and that's been the case over and over that there's a call for inadequate housing and there isn't enough and so people are forced into these situations where they're in staying in somewhere that's not ideal that's not um, you know really the ideal situation like on a street or in a park and um, there's a call for amenities to try to improve that and make it into something that people can stay in until there is adequate housing. All right. Well, listen, Fiona, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you very much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, violent crime is very much on the minds of people these days, and statistics tell us why that is. Just look at the Kelowna area, for example. The latest StatsCan numbers show that area had the worst crime rate among major Canadian metropolitan areas in 2021, with the per capita crime rate going up 10%. Also, shocking and disturbing stats released this week about crime in BC overall, like sexual assaults. Statistics Canada says police reported sexual assaults went up 15% in 2021. In fact, the national rate went up even more, 18%. So what's going on here? Are more people reporting to police? Is that what that is? Or does this number even reflect the real number of assaults that we are seeing out there? Are we underestimating it? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Angela Marie McDougall, the Executive Director of the Battered Women's Support Services. Angela, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. 
So what do you think is going on with these numbers? Are we actually seeing an increase in assaults or is it more people reporting to police? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I guess, what everyone's wondering. And in general, these numbers are difficult to kind of um, of gather that kind of to be for sure, because historically, when we've seen uh, increases like this, it has meant that there's, you know, there's more reporting, which uh, the reporting does, does not reflect what's actually happening within society. However, the last couple of years uh, under COVID, we have seen, you know, some other information that does tell us that things have gotten worse in terms of the rates of gender-based violence. And and the numbers that, that I look at are first what we see, what we've seen at, at our organization, Battery Women Support Services, which is unquestionably we've had more reports and, and it's grim, actually, what we've been hearing from survivors over the last two years. But also the numbers of killings of women and girls over the last couple of years have gone up as well. So when I put those two numbers together, our, like our experiences, the, the killings combined with what we're seeing in the culture in terms of the regression that we think that we've seen in terms of the erosion of any equity gains that we believe that we might have made leading up to 2020, I, I think that we are seeing more uh, I think there is an increase in sexual assault as well as domestic violence. You reference right now. You reference there some of the things that you saw during the pandemic that make That's you right. that things change. What were some of those things? What did you see? Well, more reports. I mean, certainly more survivors coming forward. There were more, you know, more victim survivors coming forward. Definitely more. This this is for us as an organization, but this was across, you know, across Canada, but also internationally. And what we also saw was inc- increases in, in violence, Simi, in, in terms of the rates, um, the, the um, you know, the, the kind of violence that, that survivors were experiencing. There was an escalation and things were more violent, more, uh, you know, more injuries. Uh, and so this, you know, I kind of put those things together and, 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 and we have to come to some conclusions that there's been some real shifts in the culture over the last couple of years. And this is what we want to address. I mean, this is why we stay on the front line is we want to not only provide support to survivors, but we're, you know, we want to really double down and get, get back some of those uh, equity and, and cultural, um, uh, you know, gains that we thought that we'd made. We want to get those back. Is there, could it be a combination then? Could it be that yes, more people are reporting these sexual assaults and we are seeing more of them? Well, that's trickier because here's the, here's the other thing that I think is not lost on you or the listeners, is we see all too often whenever a survivor comes forward and reports to the police. I mean, when we're talking about reporting, we're talking about making a formal report to the police. And then what we, you know, what we have seen, unfortunately, is that uh, there tends not to be uh, an, a really good result for survivors that come, you know, that make their reports to police and then pursue the criminal legal system. I think there's been some high-profile uh, cases that we, where we've seen where survivors have come forward and shared their experiences and had, you know, and had a really poor result and that they haven't received a justice in terms of the criminal legal system. And so uh, what we're seeing, and, and we've had our own research that we just did, we did some research and we're, a report is coming out uh, in September that uh, actually tells us that increasingly more and more survivors are not providing formal reports to law enforcement because they don't believe that they're, you know, they're, they're seeing, uh, you know, the, some of the challenges that police have in investigating sexualized uh, violence, but also how the criminals, if there's, a, if there's an investigation uh, and thing, and 
and charges per, are pursued through the criminal system, we're not necessarily seeing a good result for for survivors. And so there, you know, we're seeing increasingly that survivors are not reporting to the police, and it, and this is already violent crime that was underreported. I mean, I think this the stat is around six percent is reported to the police. I think it's far less than that. So I don't know if I mean I feel fairly. We don't know for sure, but I I feel fairly comfortable in saying that um, I don't believe we're seeing increased uh, reports, actually, in in terms of uh, the amounts of sexualized assault. Really? Okay. Because that is so tricky, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you do want people to report more. Absolutely. But we also, once they make that report, have to make sure they are dealt with or we're taking steps backwards. It's been really tough. You know, this has been, uh, and this is not sort of under COVID times. This is something that we've seen certainly previously where there, you know, the criminal legal system uh, is not really designed to take on issues of sexual assault or domestic violence. It just isn't. And, and this is the way that the whole criminal system was created in Canada. And what we've been doing is tinker with, tinkering with it over the years in terms of, you know, creating laws and policies and and doing, you know, various kinds of advocacy in terms of wanting to do better training for, for law enforcement, for, you know, for, um, you know, criminal system players within the system. And then also there's a lot of effort around wanting to train judges to be more effective. I mean, I think there's been just really horrible stories of judges that have said just horrible victim-blaming statements uh, over the years that, that have been reported in media. So we've been attempting to do that to make the criminal system be a place, a better place, where survivors can come and make reports and have you know, have uh, a sense that, the, that that if they've been harmed by somebody, that those that did harm would be held accountable and that they would have a sense of, of justice. Right. Unfortunately, you know, we're still trying to get the system to, to be effective in that way. And COVID times hasn't made it any better. But is the it's system willing to listen? Like, what are you hearing from police departments? Do they are, Is there an acknowledgement that, yeah, we can do better here? Well, there's always an acknowledgement of a willingness to do better. And frankly, Simi, Canada has some of the best laws and policies on the books around gender-based violence in the world. Uh, And unfortunately, they're not enforced. Uh, You know, you mentioned, you know, Kelowna and you mentioned maybe some other places. There's some really horrific examples that have come up in, in, you know, in various regions in British Columbia where there's been just horrible police failings in attempting to interview um, complainants, interview survivors, uh, and, you know, and doing, in, doing investigations and, and frankly, even doing uh, harm. I mean, there's been some reports that have been in the media of, you know, of police that have done really bad work. So we continue to do our advocacy. We continue to file complaints. We're working, of course, with public safety and Solicitor General around, you know, addressing policing uh, generally, but also policies uh, that guide police response that's in effect right now. Uh, police response, both in terms of sexual assault, but also domestic violence. Uh, this is work that we've been doing at the organization I work for, but also with our colleagues across the province, at least since the 1990s. Uh, and we get a step forward, you know, here and there. Uh, but the last few years, we've had unfortunately, some significant steps backwards. And so we have to do the work to get at least back to where we were prior to 2020, which was still meant we still had a lot of work to do. Yeah. It's not easy. These, the roots to some of these problems are very deep. And, but this is what we hope to disrupt. Angela, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for the opportunity.